I'm a city guy. I've been a city guy my whole life. I don't really do mountains. <laughs> so it was quite the experience. And as I think back on that day, a few questions come to mind. One, why do the roads have to be so small? I don't know. Why would you make them so small? <laughs> Second, why do we go at night and not during the day? And third, why do people even choose to live up there? It was so high. But I remember walking the backyard of my, of my mom's friend's house, and the one thing that stood out to me is I couldn't believe how dark it was. There was barely any light. And if you weren't careful, you can easily fall off the cliff. Tragically, the state of fallen man is no different from that experience that I had. His pride elevates him to a position that is far above everyone else. And while he thinks that he sees clearly, he is walking in the darkness, heading towards a cliff of eternal ruin. But praise be to God that, save, that he is saving sinners and being the light that they need to truly see. Our verse for tonight from Isaiah 49, 6 touches on this, and it reads, He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. From here, we will meditate on two glorious callings of Jesus Christ. The first will be his calling to be the servant of the Lord. The second will be his calling to be the light of the world. Please follow along with me as I read from verse 1 to help us get the context. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, surely, my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arises and arise, princes, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. As I read through Isaiah this past couple of weeks to prepare for this devotional, I was reminded of how bad things had gotten for Israel and Judah. Beginning in Isaiah 1, we read, Ah, sinful nation! A people laden with iniquity, 
offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And the Lord continues on and tells them how he does not want any more of their worship as it's vain. If they were, if they were to raise their hands to him, he would hide his eyes. If they were to offer him prayers, he would not listen. It's tragic. As they had been set apart from all the other nations, rescued from being slaves in Egypt, and had been carried along to a land flowing with milk and honey, there was no other nation more blessed or loved than them. But they had placed their trust in idols and in other nations. They simply did what was right in their own eyes. Sadly, their story is like an old cassette player that is stuck on the same song. They kept replaying and replaying the same tune of Adam in the garden. He had been called by the Lord to worship him and to be his servant who would fill the earth with other image bearers to bring him glory. But he would fail. The patriarchs were also called to be the servants of the Lord and fill the earth, which we read of in Exodus 32:12. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. And all this land that I have promised you, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And as we all know, that at some level, all of these servants failed. Even David, who was the most promising of the servants of the Lord, would have a mighty fall. All their sins and all their failures created a longing and an expectation for someone to come who would serve him perfectly. In our first meditation for tonight, we can rejoice because we see that one of the glorious, the glorious callings of Jesus is to be the servant of the Lord. Let's read again our first, the first half of our verse. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the pursuit of Israel? And as we meditate on Jesus' calling to be a faithful ser a servant of the Lord, we will do so in two ways. We will first behold him as the faithful servant. And secondly, we will behold him as the suffering servant. Let's first behold him as a faithful servant. One of the most interesting things in Isaiah, and there's many of them, is the identity of the servant of the Lord. We're going to get to Ken's question here. We read in Isaiah 41.8 that Israel as a whole is a servant of the Lord. But then in our chapter, it does make the most sense to take the servant to be an individual. Even when the servant is called Israel in verse 3, we should understand this servant as being a representative for the nation as a whole and embodying, embodying all that they were supposed to do. Our verse also helps us to see that the servant had to be a single individual from the nation as the nation cannot raise up themselves or bring themselves back. They need someone to do it for them. And how awesome it is that Jesus would be the one that was called to do this. Unlike faithful Israel, he would come and perfectly obey the Lord's will, 
When tempted in the wilderness, he would trust in the Lord. When he would preach and teach, he would unpack the true meaning of the law and not man-made traditions or what the people wanted to hear. He would not be like the shepherds of Israel who only looked out for themselves, but he would seek the lost and look to bring them back. And when faced with that rugged cross, he would not run away, but he would faithfully endure the shame and pain that came with becoming a curse. And saints, how blessed that we are in him. Like the Lord's people of old, we must ask ourselves, how many times have we grumbled and complained? How many times have we placed our trust in other things besides the Lord, whether it be money, our belongings, our status, or even our own strength and wisdom? How many times do we come here on Sundays to worship him, but our hearts are far off, whether we are thinking about the work week, whether we're allowing our thoughts to wander about unprofitable things, or even allowing ourselves to be distracted by our phones. But praise be to God that he is faithful to forgive and to have mercy on us. And it's only because Jesus' faithfulness enables us to come to his throne of grace. And even though we should strive to grow in faithfulness to the Lord and as his servant, his servants, it is ultimately our Savior's faithfulness that has raised us up from the dust to be seated with him in the heavenly places. And dear saint who struggles with assurance, or saint who has recently fallen, look to him whose faithfulness extends to the heavens where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is faithful to complete the work that he begun in you. He caused you to come and rest in him. He is faithful to keep you until the end. And second, we have the suffering servant. As we, be, as we have been seeing in John, that when Jesus came to raise up the tribes of Judah and bring back the pursuit of Israel, things did not go as we would have expected. The people only wanted to see miracles and to load up on bread. The religious leaders hated him and were chomping at the bit to kill him. He was ridiculed, rejected, mocked, and eventually crucified. In light of all that, it is understandable by what he would say in verse 4. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. His earthly ministry ended in apparent failure. His own disciples ran away. His own people did not want him. And he suffered the most shameful death. But, and the buts are very important <laughs> in Scripture, there's a second half to verse 4 which reads, Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. Even in the midst of all the suffering that he experienced, he knew that out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. He knew that he could entrust himself to his father and that he would receive his reward in due time and see the pursuit of Israel return to him. And there's a lot of encouragement here for us, but I want to particularly address our elders. I'm sure that there have been times that you have felt 
the weight of verse 4. You look at your ministry, you look at your sermons, you look at some of the services that may not be well attended as you would hope, and you ask yourself, have I labored in vain? Brothers, when that question arises in your hearts, keep your eyes fixed on the suffering servant. Continue to pray as he did. Continue to preach as he did. Continue to entrust yourself to your God and know that your chief shepherd is able to sympathize with you. He knows your toil. He knows your anguish. He knows that longing and desire that you have to see the church be a glorious display for the world to see. So even when you do not see apparent success or fruit, remember that the Lord's, remember the Lord's promises and that his timing is not like ours. Remember that he is watching over his word and he will see to it that his church will shine with splendor and beauty. So press forward, my brothers, remember that the path to glory is paid with suffering. Our Lord and Savior first walked down that road, and you are not alone, as you have all of us, and we're praying for you, and we are serving as a continual testimony that your labors are not in vain. And as we have been meditating on Jesus' glorious calling to be a servant of the Lord, let us now turn to the second half of the verse, which reads, And I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. From here, we will fix our thoughts on Jesus' calling to be the light of the world. From unjust wars that are currently happening, mass shootings that leave numerous children dead, and to our culture that is obsessed with redefining sexuality, we are all aware that darkness looms in many places and manifests itself in different ways. As in Isaiah's day, there are many who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And whether it be a sinner who commits any visible act that they can or the self-righteous sinner that appears squeaky clean on the outside, everybody, without exception, is born into the kingdom of darkness where they love to reside. And if it was not for Jesus being called to be the light of the world, all of us here in this room would be in the same state, blinded by our sin, groping in the darkness, not be able to know God and his numerous perfections. But God, in his kindness, and out of his abundant, steadfast love, sent Jesus so that we could be transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light. As we are now in him and look to be his followers, we also play a role in being a light to the nations. The apostle Paul interpreted our verses in Acts 13, 46, when he said, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, 
that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So, as we are called to be the light of the world, what are some ways that we can do this? Ephesians 5.8 reads, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. As we come to be light, as we look to be light of the world, and desire to see others come to a saving knowledge of him, we need to make sure that we ourselves are first walking in the light. It is not enough just to know a bunch of doctrine, but it needs to to manifest itself in our lives. Why? Because our holiness matters. It matters to the unity and purity of our local church. It matters because of our witness. It matters as it can affect how other people view the Christian Christian walk. J.C. Weil, who has been quoted a lot, so you should read his book, Highly Recommend Holiness, which I'm going to quote from, says, Your life is an argument that none can escape. There is meaning about holiness which not even the most unlearned can help taking in. They may not understand justification, but they can understand charity. I believe there is far more harm done by unholy and inconsistent Christians than when, than than we are aware of. Such men are among Satan's best allies. They pull down by their lives what ministers build with their lips. They cause the chariot wheels of the gospel to drive heavily. They supply the children of the world with a never-ending excuse for remaining as they are. End quote. Brothers and sisters, let this not be said of us. And let us not be afraid to ask the Lord to shine his light in every area of our life so that we can walk more and more as the children of light. And dear saint, if you are harboring some secret sin, bring it to the light. Confess it to a trusted brother or sister. Confess it to the Lord. Do not keep hiding it as it will look to grow and grow and you will stumble in more than one way. There is no point hiding it as the Lord sees it. Come out from hiding underneath his shadow and hide yourself under the shadow of the Lord's wings so that he can lift you up once again. And in connection with walking as children of light, we should also be zealous for good works and evangelism. Matthew 5, 14 and 16 reads, You are the light of the world, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And we should be encouraged, because as a church, there have been so many ways that we have been shining brightly and bringing glory to our Father in heaven. Just recently, there's been three instances that I've seen where a number of you have jumped at an opportunity to do good work, the same way that I jumped at a stake that just makes me. It's been amazing. 
It has personally blessed my soul as it reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. And anytime I have shared these type of stories with my unbelieving friends, their responses are telling. Why? Because it goes against our natural bent of self-preservation and the need to serve self. It makes them question, what is it that would cause them to love so deeply and to love those who are not even their family? And as we shine our light before others, we should be prepared to share the hope that we have because that's as important as it is for people to see to as important as it is for people to see us live out the gospel, it is even more important that they hear it from us. In this light of the world, we should be marked by a strong desire and an ambition to see the Lord's salvation reach to the ends of the earth. By God's grace, I do believe we have that ambition, but we can excel, excel even more. One way, one way, to, one way that we could excel even more is how we prioritize the prayer meeting. It is my belief that one of the ways you can tell how serious a church is about seeing others come to the Lord is how well attended a prayer meeting is. Why is this? Prayer should be the heartbeat and engine that drives a church. It shows our dependence on the Lord to bless the work that we're doing, and it tells them, apart from you, Lord, we could do nothing. Personally, I think this is one of the biggest issues in churches across America. It seems that more and more churches are forsaking the prayer meeting. And then we sit back and wonder why things are the way that they are. As Charles Spurgeon said, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. So it should be our hope and longing that we grow in esteeming the prayer meeting rightly and see it as the privilege, blessing, and necessity that it is to, and to bring our request to the Lord as we look to be partakers of his plan to save for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is not just the case corporately, but individually as well. It shouldn't surprise us that the Lord's Prayer begins with, Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the main priorities in our prayers should be that the Lord's name be honored among, his, among the nations and that his kingdom will be manifested more and more in his fullness. So, dear sister, who is trying to juggle a few babies and your sanity, you may not be able to go to Taiwan and share the gospel, but you can make it a habit to pray for the Murrays. Pray that the Lord would establish and bless the work of their hands. Pray that the Lord would shine his light into the darkened hearts of unbelievers there. Pray that he would open up doors for the gospel and that the Lord would grant the increase. And pray that the Lord... That, the, that pray that truth would prevail over unbelief as there are many false religions that have made their home there. And to my brother who is working 12 hours a day and trying to keep his sanity with a demanding boss or difficult coworker, you may not be able to go to China or Egypt, but you can pray for our brother Tim Beavis. 
Pray that the Lord would grant him and the other brothers their wisdom and open doors to be able to teach more and more church leaders around the world. Pray that their listeners would receive their teachings well and take it back to their churches so that they could grow. Pray that their work would lead to more and more churches being able to be a city on a hill so that their light could shine forth. We can do this with each of our missionaries and make it so that we pray for each one during the week. And by God's grace, he's provided another one in Prasungawal, who's looking to plant a church in India. Prayer at times may be to appear to be such a small thing, but I assure you that it can have global and eternal consequences. What a wonder and joy that we're able to be part of that. And as we look to be a light to the nations, there may be seasons where clouds of doubt dwell over us. It can lead to questions such as, why do I struggle with the fear of man? Why am I not able to reach more people with the gospel? Why does it seem that I do not have a fruitful ministry? When we go through those seasons corporately and individually, we need to remind ourselves of the Lord's promises as they are able to shine through those clouds of darkness. We need to remind ourselves that he is with us until the end of the age, equipping and strengthening us for the work that is before us. We need to remind ourselves that he is watching over us his word and that will not return void. And just like in the book of Acts, even if his people are persecuted, even if they're in prison, his word cannot be bound. We need to remind ourselves that he is building his church, that all the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The Lord Jesus will see the fruit of his suffering. As all of those whom the Father gave him and whom he bled for will come to him. In our darkest moments of despair, and it seems that the darkness will prevail in the world, we can remind ourselves that there is a day coming when night will be no more. We will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be our light, and we will reign forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we do thank you that you have shown your light into our hearts, that we are able to behold you, Lord. As we confess, Lord, we know that we are nothing special. Lord, we were in the dark, and we love the dark. But you came and you rescued us, Lord. You brought us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. So we thank you. We do pray for this church, Lord, that we would be a city on a hill. We will let our, our light shine before others. We pray that you would use us, Lord, to bring many to the light. And we pray for our missionaries, Lord, that you would use them mightily, that they would also see your salvation and reach the ends of the earth. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.